The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and uh, open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel uh, this week, uh, Daniel chapter 9. And uh, for those of you who are new with us, uh, we've been studying through the book of Daniel. And uh, the theme of the book of Daniel is, is that God is the most high ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And uh, for those of us who have a relationship with this God, uh, who've uh, come to know who this God is and uh, have bowed to that rule, we can be happy in Jesus uh, because we know that we belong to his kingdom. Amen? Amen. And even though Daniel and the children of Israel, as he's writing uh, this book here, they find themselves in a prolonged captivity in Babylon, Daniel reminds us, as well as the exiles, that the time of their captivity should not have been understood as some kind of evidence that God was no longer in charge of what was going on. God was still the king, the most high ruler. The very opposite was true, because it was actually God who placed them into captivity. That was God being in charge. The Lord was the one who gave them into the hands of the Babylonians and later into the hands of the Medo-Persians. And they were also not to entertain the thought that God was unfaithful or had abandoned them, and that that's the reason that they were in this time of captivity. The very opposite was true of that as well, because it was because God was faithful to his promises, to his covenant, that they were driven away from their land and found themselves in captivity during this time. And I don't want you to miss the big idea that's behind the prayer that we find in Daniel chapter 9. We've been talking a lot about the prayer. Daniel 9 provides us with a wonderful model of prayer, uh, just a, a powerful, fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man. The adoration of God, the confession of sin uh, that we find in Daniel chapter 9 is a, is the, are the basic building blocks for all of us for prayer, effectual prayer, essential for all of us to learn and to practice. But we, we need to Make sure that we understand the big idea that's behind the prayer. Why was this prayer here in the first place? Was this prayer included in Daniel chapter 9 uh, just because Daniel wanted to share a page from his prayer journal? Or just to give us a lesson on prayer? Was the space filler in between the prophecies that we find in the book of Daniel? That's far from the truth. The purpose behind this prayer, here it is. Daniel's prayer in this chapter is an acknowledgement that God has ever and always and only been the righteous and faithful God. This is really a vindication of God's righteousness. It was a reminder to the exiles in Babylon that they were not to think that their 70-year captivity was some kind of lapse in the covenant faithfulness of God. God had not done them wrong by leaving them in Babylon, and Daniel here expresses that to the Lord. Lord, we're here because we deserve it. It was rather the people of God, as verse 5 says, who sinned and committed iniquity acted wickedly, rebelled, even turning aside from his commandments. So when they find themselves in this captivity, they had no one to blame but themselves. They could not charge God with unfaithfulness or unrighteousness. 
God had not neglected his covenant promises. In fact, the, the reason that they were in captivity was because God was paying attention to his covenant promises, looking at it over his word to fulfill it, which is what it says down in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. Over in verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. In verse 12, it says, thus he confirmed his word, words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us this calamity. He's doing just what he said he would do. And then down in verse 13, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. It was all written down. It was all in black and white. It was in the paperwork. It was part of the contract. You know, it wasn't part of the fine print. They didn't have to, to search for it. No, God warned them ahead of time. They had nothing to complain about. And Daniel's prayer is an admission that they're here because they deserve to be here. And even though Daniel himself had not committed any of these sins that he confesses here, you know, the majority of the sins that he confesses here, he's connected corporately to those who had. And if you're connected to a team, you don't say, you know, they lost. You say, we lost, right? You don't say, they played horribly today. Even if you weren't on the field, you never got out on the court, you say, we played horribly today. Why? Because you're connected with your, your team. We understand that. You know, when our city wins, we win because we're connected. Theologians call that corporate solidarity. And Daniel rightly takes on the burden of his sinful people. He was connected to them, and he bears their burdens before the Lord. And even though Daniel was living in Babylon, he never lost sight of what his true home was. My, my true home team is Jerusalem. He never lost connection with the people of God, the people of Judah, the exiles who were scattered across the world. He says, those are my people. I'm connected to them. And when they lose, I lose. When, when they're under judgment, I'm under judgment. And he longed for them to be restored. And I pray that God grants us a similar heart for his people today. So let's jump back into this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. Hopefully everybody's registered for the class on Daniel we're going to continue in his curriculum on prayer right here in Daniel chapter 9. Let's take a look at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us, O Lord to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we do acknowledge as Daniel 
confessed here, Lord, that, that we are the ones who've sinned, that we're the ones who've acted wickedly, Father, that we're the ones who've committed iniquity, Father, that you've always and only been righteous, that you've never done us wrong all the days of our life. Lord, you've never done us wrong. You are a God who is faithful. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we approach this text, Lord, that we would have a, an appreciation for who you've revealed yourself to be and always revealed yourself to be, that you're the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, uh, Father, that you would help us to humble ourselves as your people today. And, Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to review in broad terms, there's uh, three questions that this text answers for us about powerful prayer. Verses 1 and 2, what provokes powerful prayer. In uh, verses 3 and 4, the posture of powerful prayer. And then in verses 4 to 19, the pattern of powerful prayer, the provocation, the posture, and the pattern. Uh, This week, we're continuing to take our look at the, the pattern of powerful prayer. And as I pointed out the last time we were together, Uh, The adoration of God and the confession of sin are really the two themes that Daniel just kind of pivots back and forth between. You know, the adoration of God, the confession of sin, then back to the adoration of God again and another confession of sin. Just like an an oscillating fan just kind of moving back and forth between these two great themes. And that's the discernible pattern that's evident here and that's shared in common with other prayers that we find in Scripture. In this uh, section, there's four movements back and forth between these themes of adoration and confession. Now, the first movement is in uh, verses 4 to 6. In verse 4, uh, Daniel's prayer, he uh, extols the faithfulness of God. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. You are a God who is faithful, but who are we? Verse 5, we're the ones who've sinned. We've committed iniquity. The second movement is found in verses 7 to 8. He highlights the righteousness of God. In verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but then he oscillates back again to mankind, but shame Open shame as it is this day, that's what belongs to us. Because of our unfaithful deeds, you're the God who's righteous. We're the ones who are unfaithful. The third movement, verses 9 to 14, is on the forgiveness of God. Turns to the Lord again, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. God, you are the compassionate God. But then he oscillates back again to mankind. We have not obeyed your voice, verse 14. And then the fourth and final movement comes in verse 15 and uh, speaks about the deliverance of God. In verse 15, he turns to the Lord's deliverance. Oh, now, and now, O Lord, our God, who have brought back your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. You are the delivering God. But in spite of that great deliverance in the past, who are we? As it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. And there's just these movements back and forth, the, the glory of God and the depravity of mankind. And these are the, the ways that uh, Daniel just kind of lays out this prayer before us. And like I mentioned before, these, these are really the, the themes of all faithful prayers. Just like uh, Isaiah, who it was after he saw the vision of God high and exalted that he then turned to himself and he cried out, woe is me because I'm ruined. It was in seeing the Lord high and lifted up that he truly saw himself for who he was. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. It was Job only after he the, the Lord answered him out of the whirlwind, that he said, I, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm, I'm worthless, God, compared to you. And that's, that's how the, the movements of prayer go. You know, the adoration of God and then the confession 
of sin. It's the Lord who taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name, before he taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, right? It's the glory of God that brings about the true conviction of sin. It's when we see God in his glory that we see ourselves for who we are, and that's the biblical pattern of prayer. And the last time we were together, we covered the first two points underneath the heading, the the faithfulness of God and the righteousness of God. You know, when we think about who God is, he's faithful, he's righteous. But not only is he faithful and righteous, the third point underneath this uh, uh, pattern of prayer, the third point is that he's also a God of forgiveness. He's a God of forgiveness, a God of compassion. Look at verse 9. It says, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice so that, so that the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. And it's the, the forgiveness of God that magnifies the depths of our sin. It's important for you to pay attention uh, to the basis upon which Daniel offers this prayer to the Lord. He does not offer a prayer to the Lord because Israel has been these upright, law-abiding citizens. It's the law that condemned them. And that's what Daniel admitted back in verse 4. He says, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. And he goes and says that, that we are the ones who sinned. We've turned aside from your commandments. They're the ones who rebelled against the Lord, it says in verse 9, a word that means to, to defy authority. We've rejected you as the king over us. They've not obeyed the voice of the Lord in verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings. And actually, this is a, you know, you can jot this down just as a, a side note, a footnote here. Uh, this is another defense for the word of the prophets being the word of the Lord. Because he says, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord. But who's the one who spoke to them? It was the prophets who spoke. The word of the prophets was the voice of God. God's voice is heard through the words of his prophets and through the words of Scripture today, which means to disobey and disregard Scripture is to disobey or disregard God himself. Israel disregarded the word of the Lord, the voice of God through the prophets that warned them about this destruction, the captivity that was to come. Micah warned them about it, 710 B.C., 100 years before it happened. Isaiah warned them about it, 681 B.C., 75 years before it happened. Habakkuk wrote around 605 B.C., the same year that it happened, and Jeremiah spoke while it was happening. They'd been warned over and over and over again, and Israel blew them all off. The king Jehoiakim even shredded the warning that he was given and threw it in the fire. They, they, They totally disregarded the voice of the Lord, transgressed his law according to verse 11, which means they clearly knew where the line was and they crossed over it. You know, like our, our, our children. You know, verse 11 says, indeed, all Israel has transgressed. They go beyond the line. It's like our, our children when you tell them, you know, don't do this, and then, you know, they kind of look back at you to see if you're watching. Like, were you really serious? Like, you're really telling me not to touch this? And they, they, they're still moving towards it. And you're like, you know where the line is, and you're steady going over it. That was Israel. They're looking back at God. It's like, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Transgressing the law of the Lord. Daring God to follow through with it. Transgressed the law of the Lord. Turned aside a word that's translated as apostasy in the Greek translation. Not obeying your voice. So what happened? The curse has been poured out on us. Along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. 
And again, Daniel points us back to the Mosaic Covenant, which was a, a bilateral covenant between two parties, promising blessing if they obeyed and curses if they disobeyed. God warned them through Moses that I will bless you if you obey and curse you if you disobey, but they totally disregarded that. Last time I, I read for you the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28, but I want to read for you another section of the law that speaks about the same thing. Flip back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 26. You know, we often hear about the, the blessings, don't we? You know, people even write songs about it, you know? I'm blessed in the city. I'm blessed in the field. I'm blessed when I come and when I go. You don't hear any songs about it. I'm cursed, right? I'm cursed in the city. I'm cursed in the field. But that's, that's part of it. You know, you want to take the blessings, but the, the cursings are right alongside of that. Take a look at uh, Leviticus 26, starting at verse 14. Leviticus 26. Listen to what the Lord says here. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if, you instead, you, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I'll set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you. That's exactly what happened in Babylon, right? You will flee when no one is pursuing you. Drop down to verse 27. Verse 27. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you. And I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your own sons, the flesh of your daughters you will eat, which literally happened during the siege on Jerusalem. Jerusalem was under siege. They were being starved inside the city gates and inside the city walls, and they were eating their own children. I will then destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. I'll make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you. As your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste, then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And that actually explains why the time in Babylon was 70 years. Why 70 years? It's because in, in addition to all the other sins that Israel committed, Israel also never followed the Sabbath year commands that were given to Israel and appointed for the rest of the land. Actually, flip back to, to Leviticus 25. I'll just show you this real quick. Leviticus 25, look at verse 1. It says, the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crops. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. And what, what this was, it was, a, it was a recognition that God was the one who gave them this land. God was the one who provided for them. And even, even the land itself, 
you know, would be an example that God is the one who gives us this land, and we're, we're resting this land because God is the one who provides for us. But how many times did Israel follow that law? How about this? No time? <laughs> no time? Never? Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21 says that they were carried away to Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And all of this happened according to the direction of the Lord. Flip back to Daniel 9 again. This was part of the Mosaic Covenant. If you disobey, this is what I'll bring on you. And God is just fulfilling his word. He's just doing exactly what he said he would do. Look at verse 12. It says, thus he confirmed his words. Literally, he caused his word to stand, which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. No other nation experienced the covenant curses of God because no other nation was in covenant with God. It hadn't happened with anybody else. This is what happened with us because we had the relationship with God. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord. Even even though we're receiving this, this discipline of God, we've never turned back to God to say, God, we know that this is coming from you. God, have mercy on us. God, God, we beg of you. None of that was happening. Daniel's the only one praying here. Why isn't the whole nation like this? The whole nation should be in mourning. The whole nation should be in sackcloth. But Daniel's the one who's doing it. He says, Lord, we haven't done this. We haven't even come to you to say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, I recognize that we've, we've transgressed against your law. We have not sought the favor of the Lord. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's we have not smoothed your face. What, what, what that means is that the, the expression of, of anger was often seen in the expression of a, a twisted brow, you know, furrowed brow, you know, you could see it on the, the face that, that, that he's angry. And it's, it's when we obey him that, that the, faith becomes, the face becomes smooth again. It says, Lord, we haven't smoothed your face. We, we've transgressed against you, and then we keep on doing it. And then we keep on doing it. And then we keep on doing it. And Lord, you're, you're, still, you're still angry with us. We have not even sought your favor. We've never sought to smooth your face. By turning away from our iniquity, giving attention to your truth, it says in verse 13. Even though God's hand was heavy upon them, they refused to turn back to God. How sad is that? Psalm 32 and verse 9 says, Do not be as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in chuck. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. He says, don't, don't be like the, the mule that just kind of, you know, leans back. I'm not going anywhere, digging in, digging in. You know, the Lord is, 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 is putting the, the pressure on you. Even many sorrows on the wicked, but you're just still digging in, digging in. I'm not going anywhere. It's like, how much more do we need to do here? Like, are you serious? You're, you're still going to resist me? You're still going to resist my will? After all that I put on you? Don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding. You know better than this. And God has the resources to match our rebellion. I mean, just, just to tell you, like, like, there's two things that keep me away from sin. One of them is because I just, I just love the Lord. 
just, just love the Lord. I love the time in his word. I love my communication with God, you know, just open prayer to the Lord. It's like I don't want anything to interrupt my communion with God. That's one thing that keeps me away from sin. The other thing that keeps me away from sin, I'm absolutely terrified of God. I, I mean, God has no lack of resources to deal with me. I mean, there's infinite ways that he can get my attention if he desires to do so. I am terrified. <laughs> like, like why, would I, why would I even try that? Why would I even test that? I love the Lord, and I'm fearful of the Lord. Keeps me in check. <laughs> they didn't have any fear of the Lord. Even though the Lord was heavy upon them, it's like, I'm still resisting. You know? Like, like is, that, is that all you got? Are you kidding me? I mean, do you really want to get into that kind of battle with the Lord? Verse, nine, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store. The idea is he's got more reserved in the bank. He brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. All that God was doing was right. And there's nothing that Daniel could offer in his defense or the defense of the people. You know, when you're doing 90 in a 30-mile-per-hour zone, there's nothing you're going to say when you're pulled over, right? You know, when you get pulled over, it's just like, okay, how much is the ticket, you know? It's just, (laughs) I'm not going to try to defend myself here. So Daniel doesn't argue on the basis of deeds which he has done. All he can do is throw himself upon the mercy of the court. He's appealing to God for mercy. Similar to, to King David back in 2 Samuel 24, after he sinned, he numbered the people when he wasn't supposed to, and he says in verse 14, I am in great distress. Let us now fall on the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. I'm just going to throw myself on the mercy of the court. <laughs> I'm just going to throw myself upon the mercy of, of God. And that's what Daniel recognizes. Lord, there's, there's nothing I can offer by way of my obedience here, our righteousness. We've sinned. <laughs> We're caught red-handed. Like, like, Lord, we just need your mercy. But can't we be thankful that as great as our sins are, that his grace is greater? <laughs> the God is a God of compassion. The God is a God of forgiveness. And this is exactly what the text says. Look at verse 9 again. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. Forgiveness belongs to God. And the same is true for us today. The only hope that we have is the mercy of God. The grace of God, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, says he saved us not on, the, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not based on our law-keeping. We're not law-abiding citizens. But it's according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You've done nothing. It's not a result of works so that nobody can boast. Romans 11 verse 6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If I had to work for a gift, it's not a gift. It's a paycheck. I I don't work for it. And so many of the world's religions are based on what men can do. That's what we find in Judaism today. Roman Catholicism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all rely in part on what they can do. I remember speaking to, to one person who was a Mormon and they said to me, uh, you know, isn't it so gracious of God that he does 90% of the work and we only have to do 10% of it? <laughs> Here's what makes that bad news. If, even if I were required only to do 10%, my 10% would still be corrupted. 
Isaiah 64, 6. All, not some, but all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, a filthy garment. Everything that I can do is corrupted. Everything that I have to offer God is filthy. My little 10%, if that was the equation, my my 10% would be so filthy that that would still condemn me to hell forever. So Daniel can point to the nation's obedience. All our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And that's what's so dangerous about any attempt to place ourselves back underneath the law. Because you can't place yourself under the law without also placing yourself under the curses of the law. Galatians 4.21 says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? <laughs> like, have you never read it? I mean, don't just read the blessings. There's curses there too now. Do you want to be under the law? You've got to take it all. You, you can't just pick and choose what you want. You gotta, if you're going to be under it, you're going to be under all of it. Galatians 3.10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You want to be under the law? Uh, Welcome to the party. You've got to enjoy all of it. All of it. And Daniel understands that. That's why he doesn't appeal to God based on law. He appeals to God based on mercy. And we understand from the New Testament that God was able to grant that mercy. Why? Because Jesus Christ would eventually come to pay for the sins previously committed. It's, it's been said like this, the, the people under the Old Testament, you know, their, their forgiveness was like on, on credit. <laughs> you know, that the, the payment was coming, but it hadn't been paid yet. Jesus would be that payment. And for us, we're, we're, we're getting it on debit. It's already been paid, right? It's in the bank. But we all come before God based on his mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Have you realized that the law condemns you? The law condemns you? Have you realized that there's nothing that you can do to offer yourself to God? There's no amount of righteousness that you can work up to offer yourself to the Lord. Our sins were so dark and so deep that the only hope that we have is forgiveness. That's the only hope. The debt is too great to be paid off. We're like the slave in Matthew 18 who owed this tremendous amount And the only hope that he had is to fling himself upon the mercy of the king. I I can't pay this. That's that's us. We cannot pay our debt. And Daniel reminds us that the one who offers forgiveness is the Lord. It belongs to him. Compassion and forgiveness belong to him. That's why I come to you, Lord, because you're a God of forgiveness and compassion. Compassion, the the Hebrew word for compassion is a word that that literally means the, the stirring of the bowels, the bowels, the intestines. The Hebrew language is a visceral language, and they often connected the emotions with the part of the body that experienced it the most. And for them, pity and compassion were felt in the gut. When Scripture speaks of God's compassion for us, it uses a very human expression. You know, we speak in similar terms today when we say, you know, my stomach turned, or I felt butterflies in my stomach, or it was gut-wrenching. You know, this experience was gut-wrenching. It's saying that, like, my, my stomach just, the powerful emotions just turn my stomach. And God says, when I look at, at you and your sin, it's gut-wrenching. Like, my stomach turns over your sins. Same word used over in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 in that famous story about 
uh, Solomon's wisdom, where two women both claim that the baby was theirs, that a baby was theirs. And then Solomon says, oh, I got the solution for you. Let's just divide the, let's cut the baby in half. Divide the baby in two. And the, the one to whom the child belonged was deeply stirred. Her stomach started to turn in compassion for the child and said, just give her the child. <laughs> that's that's the, the, the kind of stirring of compassion. Same word that's used for God's compassion towards us. That he sees us in our sins when we reach out to him and say, Lord, have mercy. His stomach just turns in compassion to save us. And it's in the plural here. It's not just compassion. It's compassions. It doesn't appear there in, in our English because that's not how we speak of it, but it's compassions. And it's not just forgiveness. It's forgivenesses. Because he overlooks many, multiple, mul- manifold sins, right? Romans 5.20 says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it's the forgiveness of God that magnifies the depth of our sin. Your sin was so deep, it had to be forgiven. You couldn't pay for it. It had to be forgiven. Because forgiveness is the only thing that could take care of it. And the final movement of this confession is a lot shorter than the first three, but it's the same pattern as the rest. There's a similar exaltation of God that's followed by a confession. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. Here it is. It's, it's talking about what? It's the deliverance of God in the past. God, you're the God who's delivered in the past. I've read the history books. I know what happened before. And Daniel here, he reflects on the past deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And he reminds himself that, that God, the God that he's praying to is the same God who brought the people out of Egypt before. You're the same God. The mighty hand refers to the 10 plagues that God inflicted upon Egypt to free Israel from slavery. Deuteronomy 26 verse 8, Moses says there that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm with great terror, signs and wonders. Deuteronomy 4.34 says, Has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Has any God done this before? There's no God like our God. There's no delivering God like our God. And it was through these plagues that God made, his, made a name for himself. Exodus 7.5 says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. You're going to know who I am by the time I'm finished with you. Exodus 14.18, it says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. God delivered them with a mighty outstretched arm. And the prayer that Daniel is about to make is, Lord, I know you've done it before. Could you do it again? <laughs> Lord, I know you've delivered before. And Lord, I know we don't deserve it, but I've seen your track record. I know what you've done before. Could you do it again? Flip over to Psalm 106. Because here we find another recounting of the Lord's deliverance. And it reminds us here that when Israel was delivered before, it wasn't because they deserved it. Look at Psalm 106. Take a look at verse, verse 6. Psalm 106, starting at verse 6, it says, We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Sounds, sounds very familiar to, to Daniel, doesn't it? 
sinned, committed iniquity, behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea. Rebellion. I mean, I mean all these words, just similar words, right? By the sea at the Red Sea, nevertheless, he saved them. Even though they were rebels, even though they sinned, even though they behaved wickedly, they committed iniquity, what did God do? He saved them. Why did he do that? For the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, and they sang his praise. They also quickly forgot his works, which it says next. But the idea here is, God, you've saved the rebellious people before. You saved the people who committed iniquity before. Lord, I'm looking at the past and I'm, I'm just asking, Lord, could you do this again? Lord, you saved them from a people that hated them. Could you do that for us? Would you not make your name great again by delivering us? Daniel was burdened for his people. Lord, could you do it again? Can you deliver us again? Because he was connected to his people. And I can't help when I think about this to think about the people that we're connected to. Who are are our people? Our people are the people of God. That's our people. Our people are those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And would, would God not desire that his name would be made great among us again? In the year 1520, the German reformer Martin Luther wrote a treatise titled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he argued that the church of his day was being held captive by unbiblical beliefs and practices and ceremonies and rituals, and that it needed to be set free by the word of God. And doesn't the church need that same kind of deliverance today? The burden of my own heart has always been for the church, for the people of God, those who are trapped by false systems of religion, those who don't understand that the word of God performs its work and you who believe, that's always been the burden of my heart. And it should be our prayer that God would do a similar work among us, that the Lord would deliver his people, that we would not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty for the the pulling down of strongholds, right? Destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. False ideologies, speculations that become a fortress and a prison for unbelief. And it's the word of God through the spirit of God that tears those walls down. And a true revival, I mean, we've heard a lot about revival in recent days. But a true revival is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and it prioritizes the local church. And Daniel is asking for deliverance for his people. Lord, would you deliver our people? And it was only after Daniel thoroughly confessed his sins that he then dares to make his request. This is the supplication. How does Daniel then pray? Look again at Daniel 9. Look at verse 16. And this this is so helpful for us as a model prayer because what, what Daniel does in these final verses is he petitions God to act, but he petitions God to act for his own sake. That's his primary motivation. The primary motivation for Daniel is the glory of God. Listen, listen to how Daniel offers his prayer. This is so good. Verse 16. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, 
For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is all about God. You see all those pronouns there? It's not my city, it's your city. It's not my mountain, it's, it's your mountain. These are your people. This is for your sake. This is your sanctuary. It's about your name. It's on account of your great compassion. Do you understand what Daniel's doing here? The power of this prayer is that even the petitions that Daniel makes are all God-centered. It's all about God and his glory. This is similar to the intercession of uh, Moses in Exodus 32. Moses entreated the Lord God and says, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. God, this is about you. This is about you. This is what we find in Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth, why should the nation say, where now is their God? And that's how Daniel appeals to the Lord. He appeals to God based on his own glory. It's, it's, like, it's like he's saying, God, if, if, if this was just about us and our reputation, I, I would understand, but, but God, you co-signed for the nation of Israel. Your, your name's on that. Why should the nation say, where is their God? The nation of Israel was experiencing the wrath and anger of God. The city of Jerusalem, the holy mountain of of Zion, were in ruins. The walls were broken down. The siege on Jerusalem, we read about it before. But they they laid Jerusalem to ruins. The temple of the Lord, which stood there in Jerusalem, was completely decimated. All the treasures of the temple were taken out, down to the pots, the shovels, the, the snuffers, the spoons. Everything removed from the temple. And then the temple itself was set on fire, burned the sanctuary down to the ground. The king of Jerusalem had his eyes plucked out, watching his own sons die before they were plucked out, put in bronze fetters, led around like an animal. The people were slaughtered and left in the streets. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 21 says, Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins, my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. And anyone who was left was just a reproach, despised. Jeremiah 19 says, I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, in verse 7. I'll cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beast of the earth. And I will also make this city a desolation, an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters, just shaking their heads. 
Can't believe what's happened here. Can't believe what's happened here. And God says, I've done this. I've done this to them. Daniel says, I know, and it's because of our sins. But God, your name is attached to that city. Don't leave it like this. I I want your name to be honored. Your people, your, your name is attached to your people. Why should they remain a reproach in the earth? God, this, this city is your city. This mountain is your mountain. And for a period of time, God was willing to have his reputation dragged through the dirt because of the sins of his people. And now Daniel prays, Lord, for, for your sake, O oh Lord, would you let your face shine on us again? <laughs> shine on your city. The brightness of the, the face was a metaphor for the blessings of God. Let your face shine upon us again. Would you restore the favor to the city? Oh my God, he says in verse 18 back in Daniel 9, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Stretch your ear out. Cup your hands behind your ear to hear us. Open your eyes, Lord. Would you see what's happening to your city? The desolations. It's your name. We're not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. God, it's, it's because of you that I ask these requests. And then he ends with these urgent, fervent, staccato like prayers in verse 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen. Take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay. Why? Because your city, your people are called by your name. And it's like Daniel saying, I can't take it anymore to see your name defamed like this. I've heard what the nations have said about your people and what they're saying about you, God. God, would you, would you put more respect on your name Would you honor your name, God? People are associating this city with you. God, would you bring honor to yourself? The year was 1945. It was at the end of World War II. A Congress of religious leaders convened in uh, Russian-occupied Romania. 4,000 clergy of all stripes were present. They were all expected to speak in support of the new atheistic government, and many did. Loud applause greeted the announcement that Comrade Stalin was the patron of the Congress and various politicians made lavish assurances of support. Then bishops and others expressed their delight over a red stream now flowing into the river of the church. We're we're taking in this atheistic government. We're we're just going to roll over. Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, In that assembly sat a prominent Lutheran pastor and his wife. After speech after speech of clerical groveling and bootlicking, Sabrina Wormbrand could stand it no longer. She turned to her husband, Richard, and exclaimed, go and wash this shame off of the face of Christ. Like, I can't take it anymore. Would you wash this shame off the face of my Savior? Wormbrand reminded her that if he did, she would lose her husband. Sabina replied, I don't need a coward for a husband. So Werbrand declared before 4,000 delegates that it was their solemn duty to glorify God and Christ. And he returned home to lead his underground church, promote the gospel among Romania's Russian invaders, even smuggled Bibles into Russia disguised as communist propaganda, and then he disappeared. February 29, 1948, as Wormbrand walked to his church to prepare for a morning service, 
Two men hustled him into a van and drove away. He was in prison under a pseudonym for eight and a half years before he was released. And his wife and one remaining son did not know where he was or even if he was alive. But the motivation that drove him was that Christ would no longer be defamed. (laughs) Is that how you pray? Lord, Lord, this is not about me. This is about you. (laughs) I want your name to be honored. I want you to be glorified. Our petition should be sprinkled, David says, our petition should be sprinkled with the incense of pleading for his honor. What honor will it bring you, Lord? And that changes the way that we pray, doesn't it? Lord, what, what honor will it bring you if that son of mine is converted? What praise will come to Christ if this marriage is renewed? What credit to Jesus' name if that saint can walk through this hard and trouble and grow stronger and sweeter in the name of Jesus? And that's the pattern of powerful prayer. Lord, this is about you. I'm motivated by you, by your honor, by your glory. That's the pattern of powerful prayer. Adoration, confession, and then supplication to our God, but it's directed toward the honor of his name. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, this is about your honor. We could also add one more category of prayer, and we'll talk more about this next time. It's the category of thanksgiving. (laughs) Because right in the middle of this prayer, while, while, while Daniel is still getting the words out of his mouth, he's approached by a visitor. Look down at verse 20. It says, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Well, that'll wake you up. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. We'll get more into this next time, but isn't it encouraging to know that as we pray according to the will of God, that God is hearing us? That God hears us when we pray in this way? And we know that God answered Daniel's prayer and the children of Israel did return back to the nation of Israel. And we know that Daniel, even though he lived and died in Babylon, according to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, he would rise again and receive his allotted portion. Daniel's prayers would be answered. And today, even though as a church, the people of God today that were fractured and foolish and flimsy, we look forward to the day when the church will be adorned as a bride and prepared for her husband. Our prayers for the church will be answered. And believer, if you're in Jesus Christ, the Bible lets us know in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And do you know why? Do you know why he will do that? It's because somebody's name is on you. (laughs) Somebody's name is on you. We're called Christians. We're those who are associated with Christ. His glory is attached to us. James 2 verse 7 says that we have been called by his fair name. We're connected to him. And God will not abandon us. But it's not because of us. As Ephesians chapter 1 says, it's, it's to the glory of his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace. He will fulfill his covenant promises with us. And guess what? We're not under the covenant of Moses. We're under a new covenant. And this new covenant was established by his blood. 
Luke 22, verse 20. This new covenant is a covenant that gives us life, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. And this covenant is a covenant that ushers us into eternal life, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. And those of us who are called by his name, he will one day glorify himself in us. Isn't that a wonderful promise? We can look forward to that and we can pray according to that, knowing that God will answer our prayers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this opportunity to look at your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to be those that, that model this kind of prayer, a prayer of adoration to you, a prayer of confession, prayers of supplication. But Father, I pray that even as we pray prayers of supplication, Lord, that it would be about you and your glory, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that the shame that's been thrown on the face of Christ would be wiped off. Father, that's what we pray for. So God, I pray that you would help us to, to humble ourselves before you, that we recognize that it's not just those churches out there somewhere, but we're connected because we've been called by the name of Christ. All true believers are connected. And Father, we desire that all people would glorify you, that they would submit themselves to you. And Father, that the church today would not uh, continue to heap more shame upon its Savior, but that we would be a church that, that follows your word, that we would humble ourselves. Father, that we would be different from the world around us, that we're aliens, recognize that we're aliens, exiles in a foreign land, that we don't belong to this world. Even as we read earlier that Jesus says that my kingdom is not of this world, we're part of a different kingdom. Help us to remember that. Help us to live like that. And help us to be concerned for, for those who name the name of Christ now that they would not give Jesus a bad name. Now, Father, I pray that you would be glorified in us. And uh, Father, we thank you for, for your word. Your word is so rich. It instructs us. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.